Hey, it's Daryl. As we get started, I wanted to let you know about a new course that I just released last month, and it is called Helping Others Grow. And if you are interested, uh, I want to give you a special coupon for podcast listeners, and the code is PODCAST21, PODCAST21, and that will get you $10 off the course Helping Others Grow. If you're interested, go to gospelforlife.com, and you can find out more information there. Okay, that's it. Let's get started. Welcome to the Gospel for Life podcast. We help churches make disciples. And now, here's your host, Daryl Dash. The majority of Christians today are being discipled by popular media, flashy events, and folk theology because churches have neglected their responsibility to make disciples. But the church is not a secondary platform in the mission of God. It is the primary platform God uses to grow people into the image of Jesus. And therefore, as church leaders, it is our primary responsibility to establish environments and relationships where people can be trained, grow, and sent as disciples. Deep discipleship equips churches to reclaim the responsibility of discipling people at any point in their journey. And I'm glad today to have the author of Deep Discipleship with us, His name is J.T. English, and he's an author and teacher, and he currently serves as the lead pastor of Storyline Fellowship in Arvada, Colorado. And previously, J.T. served as pastor at the Village Church in Flower Mound, Texas, where he founded and directed the Village Church Institute. Welcome, J.T. We're glad to have you with us today. I am so glad to be here. Thanks so much for having me on. I really appreciated your book. It's certainly needed and very timely for our day. I wanted to begin by asking you about where you begin the book. You write that the church has a discipleship disease and that we've misdiagnosed it. What do you mean by that? Yeah, well, I think any time uh, maybe you're involved in ministry or a pastor, so much of what you get excited about or passionate about in ministry comes from your own story. And for me, I didn't grow up in the church. I grew up outside the church, got saved in college, and then started getting plugged into local churches, only to realize, despite the fact that I was a part of lots of good, healthy local churches, I was never really discipled in the context of the local church. You know, the church almost seemed more like a place that they were just trying to, I don't know, remove any obstacles or barriers to my involvement, just kind of low commitment level, just, you know, plug on in and get involved. I went to my pastor one day and said, I'd, I'd love to be Disciple. And basically what I was saying was, I'd, I'd love to grow. And he's like, oh, you want to grow? Like, you want to take the next step in your faith? You need to go to seminary or Bible college for that. And I was so new to the faith, I was like, what seminary? Like, I literally had never even heard of seminary before. And the fact that I had to leave my local church in order to lead in the local church, just, again, I was kind of in this post-Christian secular world coming into this evangelical subculture, it, it blew my mind. And then my experience... Uh, with with other local churches during that time, and again, I want to be, I'm not trying to throw stones, good, good, faithful gospel-preaching local churches, and I just found we weren't really discipling people. We were actually more interested in keeping people than we were in growing people. And then I went to seminary and realized, oh my goodness, there's this huge, rich tradition of biblical theology and systematics and spiritual formation that just set a flame in my life, my relationship with Jesus. And I realized we, we know that there's a disease in the local church, 
but often we are told that disease is that we're too deep. We need to we need to shallow up a little bit, and make it make this journey simpler for people. And I, I just I couldn't disagree with that more. I realized if we want to make deep disciples, the disease isn't that we're too deep, but that we're far too shallow. We need local churches who want to invite people into the depths and the richness of having a relationship with Jesus and the Triune God. And so. Ultimately, Deep Discipleship is this book that is trying to help churches and pastors and ministry leaders ask questions about how do we help anybody, whether they're a pagan or a pastor, take their next step in their relationship with Jesus. I certainly understand what you're saying in terms of we think the solution is to become more accessible, right? To uh, We're scared right. of turning people off with theology. Somebody comes out the first time to church, and we don't want them to be overwhelmed and mistake it for uh, a classroom. So... What's the the fear there? How do we avoid being too inaccessible to somebody who's just exploring and maybe coming out for the first time? You know, when I was writing the book, I was actually on sabbatical from my previous role at the village, and I happened to be at Lake Tahoe, this little cabin there, and I was starting to write write the book, and uh, I forget the exact details, but Lake Tahoe is one of the deepest bodies of water in the United States, and I began realizing. I was actually reading Habakkuk at the time, Habakkuk 2.14, which, ironically enough, I'm preaching on tomorrow at a little conference that we have here. And just reminded that the prophet says to God's people, he says, One day the knowledge of the glory of God is going to cover the earth the way water covers the sea. And I thought to myself, like, okay, that's a weird word picture. Like, what does it mean for water to cover the sea? Cover the sea? And here I am. I'm literally sitting on the shores of Lake Powell. And water is everywhere. Like, water is covering Lake Powell. It's, it, it is water. I thought to myself, there's here, there, at the, you know, close to the shore, there's this shallowness where it's, it's, it's a shallow for a toddler, an infant to just kind of put their feet in or their knees in and, and be safe. But it's also so deep that no human being has ever explored its depth. And I began to realize that that is a picture for, for being in a relationship with the triune God is that, is that we do want to have accessibility. There's, there's this place where those of us who don't know the Lord need to be invited into local churches and be taught and discipled and evangelized at accessible levels. But often we stop there, and we don't invite people into the deeper waters. And so ultimately the book was an exploration of how do we do both? What, what I don't want to communicate in deep discipleship is that this is for the spiritually elite. This is, these are for the people who really want to you know, sit down and read Herman Bobbink or something like that, although I want that in my church. But I also want deep discipleship to start at the shore, inviting people in just maybe inch by inch or toe by toe, but never stopping because – if God is this inaccessible well, I guess here's what I was trying to say in the book. If God is an inaccessible well of perfections and riches and glory and goodness, then deep discipleship is about disciples saying, I want that now. If I'm never going to exhaust the beauty of God, then I want to start diving into that water today. That's such an inviting picture. And yeah, it makes a lot of sense. Well, JT, I love that you emphasize the church as the primary vehicle for discipleship. And I, I think you are right. We sometimes uh, outsource that job to seminaries or to other ministries. Why is it important that it's the church that plays that primary role in discipleship? Yeah, and I want to be careful here, too. I'm so thankful for nonprofits. You know, God saved me through a nonprofit, and then God discipled me through a nonprofit. Honestly, most of my Christian life, in terms of beginning a relationship with Jesus and growing in my relationship with Jesus in my early years happened outside the church. I praise God for, for those organizations, but the Bible is clear that those organizations are supplemental to God's primary mission of making disciples in the local church. But in local churches, it's not just that we outsource. We certainly do. 
But one of the reasons those organizations had to start is because we were failing our primary task of making disciples. It was Christians who said, well, the church isn't going to do this, so I'm going to, I'm going to start this organization over here. And so we want to see those organizations as important, but certainly not necessary. What is necessary for God's mission to go forward is healthy, multiplying local churches. And here's the, here's the key. Uh, you know, I think back to my seminary days, again, which was a wonderful experience. But often in those classrooms or environments, what was marked uh, by by the relationships that I had with some of my best friends, still today, some of my best friends I met at seminary, was, was not like competition, but a lack of, like, I didn't care if my friends were learning the way I was learning. Like, I was there paying money as an individual student to, to grow. The person sitting next to me was was kind of an afterthought, although I wanted to have a relationship with them. It wasn't as important to me that they learn Greek as I learn Greek. If they want to learn, they can learn. But in the church, we have a fundamentally different relationship with those who are around us. They are our family members. They're not just people who happen to be in a class with us. And that, I think, fundamentally changes the quality of discipleship and learning that can happen because we begin to realize and, and I know that individualism, kind of this expressive individualism, marks not just our society, but the church, where we really show up asking the question, what am I going to get out of this? But the church is the place where that should be different, where our fundamental question isn't, what am I going to get out of this? But how is God going to shape us as a family? Like, what if we showed up to Sunday worship or to a Bible study or to a home group and said, it's not just important that I get something out of this, but that the sister or brother sitting next to me does too? And once we can capture that kind of culture, I think it qualitatively changes the kind of discipleship that can happen. And that's why I think we can actually do this better in the local church than it can be done anywhere else. Yeah, that's brilliant. And I love the way you ask questions, like even asking that question of how can I help my brother and sister grow uh, is, is such a great question to ask as we uh, approach being part of the church. That leads me to my next question. We've been rightfully recapturing the value of community within the church. And it almost seems like it's been, as you point out, at the expense of learning. Uh, so we've elevated mm -hmm. community and inviting people into community and small groups. And and part of that has been downplaying th things like maybe more rigorous training. And both are important. So what are some ways that we can create learning spaces in our churches again? Yeah, again, this is this is probably the, you know one of the core points of the book. And what I'm trying to give my life to as a pastor, uh, over the last 20 or 30 years, lots of us adopted philosophies of ministry and ministry models that prioritized community over learning. And you can tell if you've done that, if like you're at a church and they just ask the question like, hey, are you in community? Or, hey, who are you doing life with? And while that's an important question, it's not an essential question. They could ask that at the Jehovah's Witness Church, the Mormon Church, or the YMCA for that, for that matter. Being in community is not synonymous with discipleship. It is a necessary ingredient. But you can be in community with people who aren't following Jesus or people who are following Jesus but are young or weak in their faith or perhaps misleading others. And so, again, I don't, I don't want to adopt an either-or approach. Either you're in community or you're learning, because we used to have the same problem with Sunday school, perhaps, where all it was was learning, holiness, walking, walking you know, in, in life with people wasn't as prioritized. And we kind of, anytime we're in the middle position is when we're swinging between two extremes. So I, I advocate for a both-and approach where we say home groups, missional communities, small groups, the highest stated value is not learning. It's actually community, that your group might just gather together, meet, pray, talk about the sermon. 
But did the church also have other environments that the highest stated value specifically is learning, opening up our Bibles, having a teacher, and learning about what God's Word says? The, the church that I was at beforehand, the village church, one of our primary challenges was is these. we knew that learning was essential. We just thought it could happen in these home groups. And after five or ten years of us adopting the simple church model, we realized that we had over-promised and under-delivered with our community-driven philosophy of ministry. We had lots of people pooling together in, in community, but they were just pooling their ignorance together because we weren't teaching them what they had to learn about following Jesus. So I think having both of these environments, community environments and learning environments, you can actually see that the sum will be greater than its parts. So I think there's a, probably a lot of flexibility in how this actually works out. Uh, you're a pastor at a church. You've just arrived, at, was it a year ago, at, at Storyline yep, Fellowship? a year ago right now. So as a new pastor walking in the door, you want to create this environment where there's not only community, but learning. So what sort of steps did you take to begin to design that? Uh, I'm not assuming that there weren't already those spaces within your church, but could you unpack how you began to even think about implementing that within your church? Yeah, well, and candidly, that's been one of I think, the greatest challenges of being both an author of this book, but now a pastor in a new context is I'm having to almost go through the book myself and kind of look at myself in the mirror and say, hey, did you really believe this? Or, hey, we should change this. And asking the questions that the book asks. At Storyline, they had home groups before I got here, and they had men's and women's Bible studies, but I don't think we had been as clear about why each environment exists. Lots of the home groups kind of existed to also teach, and each kind of home group leader saw themselves as a master teacher who was preparing a lesson so what we've had to do is actually lower the bar a little bit for them and say, no, 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 you're just facilitating a conversation where the primary place learning happens is over here in these men's Bible studies and women's Bible studies. And then uh, the thing I'm really excited about is in August, uh, here coming up in just a few months, we're going to be launching an institute, uh, which will be a year-long kind of training program for people to spend time in the Bible and doing systematic theology. That's amazing. What I love about your book is how the questions are so applicable across the board. So you're not just giving a program that everybody has to implement, but you're really guiding us to think through some key questions biblically. And that just makes it much more applicable across different contexts. I really appreciated that. And one part of the book that really uh, was helpful for me is thinking about what healthy Christians need. And in that part mm. of the book, you unpack that that Christians need the Bible, and they need beliefs, and they need spiritual habits. Could you unpack that a little bit for us? What does that look like, and how can we help people grow and get those three areas covered? Yeah, I think, yes. Yeah, so that was probably one of my favorite chapters to write, because, so I'm a, I'm a dad. I'm a dad of young kids, five and three, and here we are in, gosh, what is it, March, and we actually still have Halloween candy at our house from October. <laughs> and as pastors, too, and as ministry leaders, we live in what's kind of a market-driven society where we, we do – we get forced into the default of asking the question, what do people want, and how can I give it to them? It's kind of this capitalistic, market-driven way of thinking about supply and demand and products and what we can give. And again, I'm not, I'm not bad enough. Yeah, that's fine. But I think we can forget that, that if I did that in my home, if I just was giving my kids what they want – if every day at dinner I said, okay, what do you guys want? You know what their answer would be every single night? It'd be Halloween candy. Dad, we know we have Halloween candy there, and we want some of that. And I think that could happen in the church, too. We go to our congregations and simply ask, what What do you guys want, and how can we provide it for you? And we'll develop entire philosophies of ministries around their appetite, not around what's actually healthy for them. 
And and what I've realized is it was important for me as a pastor and our pastoral team to actually step back and say, okay, we're, we're the we're the leaders of these congregations in the same way I, I might be a leader of my son or my daughter. That God has charged me to lead this group of people, and so I stepped back and said, "Okay, what?" And here's what's tough: is is sometimes we all have these pet hobbies and projects that we love, but we we might have to ask the question: Is it necessary? If I'm giving people things that are nice but not necessary, I'm failing as a pastor. And so I really tried to scale back, and really this this was weeks of me trying to just really think about what does a whole like a healthy holistic disciple need. And the, the categories that I came up with were every disciple needs to know their Bible. They need to know how to read their Bible. You, can, you just can't follow Jesus if you aren't growing in your love and knowledge of God through Scripture. Uh, the second was was basically systematic theology, though I don't call it that because it freaks people out, but just beliefs that whether it's the Apostles' Creed or the Nicene Creed, but just the simple confessions that God is God and I am not. Jesus is Lord and Savior. I am not. I am made in God's image. So is everybody else that I see. These these categories, we've often thought of them as distant and esoteric and for the intellectually elite. But theology is for the everyday person. But also we need to have spiritual habits and disciplines and practices, things like evangelism or fasting, prayer, meditation. And and we all know those ministries and churches that are really good at one or two of those things. But what, what I saw and what I began to realize is all three of these things need to coexist, that, that almost like a braid, that all three of these things need to be intermingling and interacting with each other. And so that became a decision-making mechanism for us. Anything that was outside one of those three buckets, we weren't going to teach. We weren't going to spend much time talking about. Uh, looking back, I might even write that chapter a little bit differently and add a bucket or slightly reformulate a bucket. But but I do think it's important for every pastor or ministry leader to say, what do the people that God has charged me with lead? Like, what do they need? And am I giving it to them? That's such a great way of approaching it. I, I don't know if you've been to these conferences. I, I've certainly been at them where there's such an emphasis on obedience and almost a downplaying mm-hmm. of doctrine and, and scripture. And to see all three, I, I think on the other hand, there can sometimes be an overemphasis on just head knowledge and not enough on mm-hmm. spiritual habits. So thinking in those three buckets is is really helpful. I'm just going to double down on what you just said. I think one of my colleagues at the village used to say, you cannot love a God you don't know. Uh, and it's such a, it almost harkens back to Augustine. Augustine says similar things. But then in addition to that, you're right. All of these, all of these conferences around obedience and sanctification, all, all, again, good stuff. Obedience is an essential element to the gospel. But you can't obey a God you don't know either. And again, we're giving people uh, commands without giving them the one who gave the commands. Yeah, and there's such an emphasis on being practical, but the practicality, if you think of the the way Scripture operates, usually it's the practicality, the obedience is a, res- is a result of something about God that we respond to, His grace or knowing Him, and then out of that, here's how we live. So that just seems to be the scripture. I'm actually way. working on a on a writing project right now, and I, I talk about theology. And one of the things I try to because again we do you're right we talk about theology as being distant and esoteric and not applicable to the everyday life for Christians, but theology defined is just words about God like theos and logos. It's just when we say theology, we're just saying what do you think, what do you believe, what do you pray, what do you sing, what do you preach when you think about God and everybody has theology then. Everybody's a theologian. So I actually often, when I'm teaching this kind of stuff, will ask people, 
I'll make the claim that theology is the most practical thing in the world. If theology is what you believe about God, then there's nothing more practical. And if you can give me something more practical, then I'll quit my job and go do that. But I, I can't imagine anything more practical than knowing God. Yeah, absolutely. I was reading today, meditating on Exodus 34, where God reveals himself to Moses. And uh, yeah, just it's an amazing scene. And at the end of that, Moses quickly bowed his head towards the earth and worshiped. And just it's impossible mm -hmm. for God to disclose himself to us without some sort of response. So that response can be hardening. But really, the response for us as believers is not a dispassionate writing it down in our notebook, but it's it's worshiping and uh, yeah, right. and how that impacts all of our life. So that's so good. So I have to admit, reading your book, I was I loved it, and I was reading along, and kind of the nagging question that you anticipated and answered is in chapter seven, and so it was almost like you were you knew that I would be asking this question, the reader would be asking this question. You say that the vision of deep discipleship we've covered so far is scalable to any church, sustainable in any church, and strategic for any church, and the question that was nagging at me as I was reading your book, and then you answered so well in chapter seven is, how in the world is the bivocational pastor of a church plant going to implement this book? And as I say, you answered that question. So could you unpack that? What would you say to yeah. the part-time bivocational pastor of a church plant who wants to disciple his people in the way that you've described? Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, because I think one of my concerns in writing the book was you know, because I was primarily writing to ministry leaders and pastors was uh, kind of a, a question of, yeah, but JT, you're at a, you know, four or five site, 14,000 person mega church with what can seem like unlimited resources. Let me believe, let me remind you, working there, we did not have unlimited resources, <laughs> though it might look like it from the outside. Uh, but but that was the question is, is we were the anomaly. Is this only happening? Not Not the anomaly. There's lots of churches like that, but not many. There's far more pastors and ministry leaders grinding it out bivocationally or as the sole pastor ministry leader. So I wanted to write this book in such a way that didn't just apply to mega churches, but applied to any healthy local church, whether they have five people coming or, or 15,000 people coming. And that's one of the reasons I didn't give a philosophy of ministry, but tried to ask questions and in something. So two, two things. The first is I believe from the bottom of my heart, this is sustainable and scalable to any, any church. I was thinking about Jesus's ministry, and again, I don't want to oversimplify this, but Jesus, he was never the pastor of a mega church, but he did have crowds who followed him. He also had the 70, he had the 12, and then he has the three, and then the one. But he somehow had these different groups of people that he was ministering to, sometimes large groups and sometimes one person. And he, 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 was, he was strategically thinking about how do I replicate myself or how do I teach in such a way that makes sense to the groups or makes sense to the individuals or the smaller groups. And let's just say somebody right now is, is pastoring a church of, of 70 people. Like that's the congregation, which is awesome. I, you are my hero. I pray that God continues to sustain you and sustain your work. But, but don't just think about the 70. Think about who are the who are the four or five maybe future elders or top tier leaders that you could also be pouring yourself into and giving more of yourself to her? Is there one or two people in your congregation who might have a future in ministry? Maybe like one of the questions that I would ask myself when I was at TBC uh, all the time was, and I would actually pray this. I would pray, God, I hope the next pastor of the village church 
is currently not a Christian. Mm-hmm. And I hope you'll allow us to create ministry environments that get this person saved by your grace, and then also develop them over the course of the next 15 or 20 years into a preaching, teaching lead pastor. And I pray that God does that through the Institute. But it can also happen through our faithful local churches. Do you, do you have a philosophy of ministry that, would, that, that somebody could get saved through? And then are you willing to give yourself to them in such a way that you're replicating and duplicating yourself? Again, I'm not trying to be overly simplistic or hyperbolic, but all pastors, any, any pastor who should be pastoring, is thinking about how do I replicate myself? Often, pastors go the opposite way and have a different instinct, which is how do I separate myself from, not separate like relationally, but how do I demonstrate that I am the expert and that the congregation should trust me? But the reality is, is pastors should be removing this expert amateur divide and inviting more people into what God has called us into. I can think of churches that are very tiny where that's been practiced, where the pastors just poured himself into younger people. So the church where I grew up was an example of that. Uh, many ways, a very imperfect church. And yet I can think of uh, at least four people in, in vocational ministry because of God's call, but it, because of the way that the pastor and others poured into their lives. JT, I'm speaking to a lot of pastors right now who are really tired and at the end of a year of COVID and heading into what looks like it could be a third wave in Ontario right now, at least, depending where you live, you could be facing that, or you might be, things might look a little bit better than that. But could you speak to just the pastor who's weary right now? And, and it doesn't have to be particularly about discipleship, but what would you say to a pastor who's just at the end of a year of COVID and pandemic and challenges and, and controversy? What would you say to a pastor to uh, remind them, maybe to encourage them in, in their job right now? Yeah. Uh, I feel like in some sense, I'm kind of speaking to myself a little bit too. It's been a hard year. You know, I, I was called as the pastor here the week the pandemic hit. And in some sense, I've had to pastor at a church that I've only met on Zoom and now slowly meeting in person again. So I, I understand the weariness and the tiredness and the, the dark nights of the soul. A couple things, maybe one a bit, a bit kind of more gospel-centered and then one a bit more maybe just, just practical. The practical one first is just hang in there, um, hang in, hang in there. I was just reading a book recently about what it looks like to be a resilient leader, and um, and then I was also listening to another podcast that was covering. A, God just keeps kind of putting these things in my path. Last, where it talks about seasons like this, seasons of transition, seasons of turmoil, seasons of challenges and pain. God uses this. God uses situations like this to shake our hands off things and to put our hands on better things. If God is using this season to, in your heart and in your life, create a greater desire and maybe even better than desire need for Him, then that's a then that's a win. Like if you come out of this season, March 2021, then needing God more than you did in March 2020, then you were actually here at our church doing this four week prayer, fasting, season called Renew. And actually, I'm, I'm glad you brought up Exodus 34. Ours is coming out of Exodus 33, where Moses is in the wilderness uh, with the Lord and basically says, yep, Moses, you and the people, you're going to go forward to the land of promise, but I'm not going with you. And Moses is like, excuse me? <laughs> you're not going with me? And, and then Moses pleads with them, and God says, okay, I'll go with you. And I just wonder if that's the kind of season that God is creating in a lot of our churches where we realize we don't want to go back, actually. Hmm. We want you. Like, we want you more than anything else, God. And God, would you lead us? Would you guide us? Would you be present with us? And 
And so for you pastors and ministry leaders, that maybe maybe you can view this opportunity as, as confessing your weariness to God. Hmm. You just go to Him and you say, God, I'm tired. God, I'm weak. God, I don't know if I can do this again tomorrow. Will you be with me? I don't want to go where you're not going. And then if we start leading churches, you develop that kind of disposition and posture as well. Man, I think we really could see a lot of renewal and revival come in the church in years to come. Hmm. Yeah. So this could be an opportunity to turn us back to God and to, to plead with him that if you don't go with us, man, we're, we're sunk. So we need you. That's, that's great. That's right. That's right. JT, what are you learning right now in your own personal life and ministry? Oh man, that, that, I feel like I could write a book on right now. You know, I'm pastoring for the first year. I've learned so many Um, I heard Ray Ortland say this a few years ago, and I think I heard somebody else say it recently, so it's just kind of on my mind right now. I'm going to give two answers if that's okay. The first answer, and here this is coming coming from somebody who loves doctrine, gospel-centered doctrine. Gospel-centered doctrine should always create gospel-centered culture. And I'm seeing the value and the importance of not just being gospel-centered in my beliefs, but also gospel-centered in the culture I'm creating in my church. If our doctrine isn't creating us to be more gentle and lowly and meek and Christ-like, then we should probably throw our doctrine away. And so just as a lead pastor now thinking, how do I lead my staff and our church into a disposition where there's so much vitriol and Hmm. partisanship, whether that's in politics or really anything, just life right now, and it seems to be escalating. What would it look like for the church to be a place where genuine forgiveness could be offered, where we didn't virtue signal by our anger, but virtue, but we're virtuous through forgiveness. That's, that's, I think, the thing that I'm learning the most. One of the second things I'm learning is how valuable history is. Sometimes all of our moments can feel unprecedented, and in some sense I, I understand that, but I was actually just listening to a great history course, like a classical history course on Winston Churchill yesterday, and just, oh my goodness, the stuff he had to face. And Winston Churchill was a far from perfect leader. But you just realize he was forged through challenging things. And or I was just reading a, a, a biography on Herman Bavink, my favorite theologian. And just to think about the challenges and the grief that he faced in his life also has like history, like suffering in history reminds me that this is just kind of what life is. And these other people were with the Lord, the Lord carried them through. And so if, if somebody is weary right now, I would encourage you pick up a biography, read some history. Uh, because I think you might be encouraged to challenge other people have faced and how they, they became better leaders as a result. It's sometimes surprising reading a biography, how many parallels there are to our time. Uh, I read Lloyd-Jones. Oh, man, a ton. And I think, yeah, it's it's he's not facing a, a very different situation than what we're facing in a lot of ways, the level of unbelief in society, the the feeling that the church is irrelevant and, and that doctrine has nothing to offer. And that's the context that he was faithful in. And yeah, so there's lots to learn from biographies. Exactly. What are, what's encouraging you right now? You know, there's a lot. I was just talking with one of my colleagues here at church. I, I tend to not be a very optimistic person. It's pretty, I, I, you know, my default is pessimism and finding what's wrong about something. But I'm just optimistic about the future of the church. I really am. Maybe I'm crazy. But like here at Storyline, I, I just think that people's worldviews have changed more in the past year than we realized. And maybe they're not even talking about yet. But I think the church really has an opportunity to step into some of those questions and provide meaningful answers. Well, JT, I'm very grateful for the book that you've written. I think it's a very timely book. I don't think there's ever, 
when I say it's timely, I don't think there's ever a time where it wouldn't be a good book to read and reflect on. But I think right now is where thinking about how to change our ministries and recenter on what matters most and move into a post-pandemic world. Uh, it's certainly a key book to think through. So thank you for your writing and thank you for taking the time today to talk to us as well. Well, I, I appreciate you just engaging with the book. It's always fun as an author just to to talk with people who, who like your ideas and want to interact with them and kind of critique them and uh, just grateful for the conversation and pray that this conversation blesses others as well. And I hope we'll read another book from you in the, the future sometime. It might be a long time, man. It's, <laughs> yeah, I, I, that, that book was a was a was a short book, but it felt like it almost killed me. So I actually do have a have a, a book project I'm working on slowly but surely. Not not really sure when we're going to finish it, but uh, maybe 15 years from now at this point. Well, I'll read it when it comes out, God willing. Okay, thank Thanks, you, JT. Brother.